Today we're continuing on in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Marcia. Marcia just read, we are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Romans, um, and we're going to be finishing Romans 12 this morning, um, but we'll talk just a minute about how our passage this morning fits in with everything else that we've seen so far in Romans 12, um, but before we do that, first just want to ask you to take just a second um, and think of a time when someone mistreated you somehow. Um, maybe maybe it's some, something that somebody did um, that, that they said something mean or hurtful to you. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they did something mean to you. Um, maybe, maybe this was a long time ago. Maybe the thing that pops in your mind is a long time ago, but man, it's still um, back there. It's still, still there, still under the surface, and you still feel it. Maybe it was more recent. Uh, maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was even this morning. Um, maybe, maybe it was a brother or sister. I know none of us would ever do anything like that to our brothers or sisters, but probably had a brother or sister that would do something like that to us, right? Um, maybe, maybe it was someone you thought was your friend. Uh, maybe, maybe it was someone that you never got along with. Uh, maybe it was somebody that, that everybody, they were mean to everybody. Uh, but yeah, think of a time. Can you think of a time when you were mistreated? Um, the reality is, it's probably happened more times than any of us can count. Probably have trouble coming up with just one example, right? Uh, like, we've, we've all been mistreated. Some of us, it's maybe smaller ways. Um, others of us, it's, it's big, painful, horrible ways. And so, like, I know, I know that's a great way to start a sermon, right? Like, you're probably thinking, man, thanks a lot. Like, I was, I was doing just fine this morning. I was feeling great after that time of worship. Like, thanks for bringing up all those memories. Um, but here's why I want you to take a minute and think about this. Like, in that time that you were mistreated, how, how did you respond? Or maybe I should ask, how, how did you want to respond? Uh, what emotions and reactions welled up inside you? Because just like we all have these common experiences of being mistreated, we can also all relate to the common responses that natu naturally flow out of us in those moments, right? Like, like what comes out of us in those moments? Um, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's, it's sadness and grief. Sometimes it's anger. Um, like this, this physical, visceral, emotional response in our bodies this desire to, to say something mean back to the person or do something mean back to get even or, or if we're honest, to do even more back to them than what they did to us because then we'll feel like they really got what they deserved, right? Like we all know those feelings and those desires when somebody mistreats us. And, and those feelings and those desires are what our passage this morning is gonna address and confront. And so our passage this morning is gonna focus primarily on those kinds of situations, on situations where we're being mistreated and how we should respond in those situations. And all of this is flowing out of what we've seen the last few weeks in Romans 12. So if you remember a few weeks ago when John preached on uh, verses one and two, he talked about how these verses, how those verses in particular, the pivot between Romans 1, and 11, 1 through 11 and the rest of the book. 
And so the first 11 chapters were, were this deep, rich theology unpacking how God's wrath doesn't discriminate, how everyone, specifically in the context of the church at Rome, Jews and Gentiles, everyone who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus stands condemned under God's judgment. But the good news in Romans 1 through 11 is that God's mercy doesn't discriminate either. And so he shows mercy to all, again, everyone, regardless of your ethnic background, Jew or Gentile. He shows mercy to all who place their faith in Jesus. And so in chapter 12 here, Paul pivots then to begin to talk about our response to that good news. Verses 1 and 2 are the summary statement then for everything that follows. That in light of God's indiscriminate mercy, the proper response, the reasonable response is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so I'm not going to re-preach that sermon again, but this is really important to keep in our minds as we continue on through chapter 12 and really through the rest of the book. Um, our, our reasonable response to the mercies of God his mercy toward Jews and his mercy toward Gentiles is to offer our bodies, plural, as one singular corporate living sacrifice. So we all together, as the church, climb onto the altar together, not as a bunch of individual sacrifices, one sacrifice together, but, but we don't climb up there and die like an Old Testament sacrifice. We, we live. Like we, we're a living sacrifice and so 12.2 and following unpack then what that living sacrifice looks like. How do we present our bodies as one corporate living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to the Lord? Like that's the overarching question then that we have to keep in the back of our minds as we continue forward in Romans. And so that's why you can see that heading there again at the top of your handout from a couple weeks ago. And so like we've been seeing the last few weeks, it's all about our relationships with one another and how we relate to one another. And so oh, this is so huge. Like what God has done for us in the gospel and who we now are in Jesus totally transforms how we think about and relate to one another. And because of that, how we think about each other and relate to one another as Christians determines whether our corporate sacrifice is holy and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Like our worship is at stake in our relationships with each other and how we relate to one another. And so we've seen over the past few weeks what it looks like then for us as a church to present ourselves as a singular corporate sacrifice to the Lord. And so first we saw how it involves us thinking rightly about ourselves in the church, that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but that we should think of ourselves as one body made up of different parts with different functions that are all essential to the health and functioning of the body. Then we saw how it involves us using our gifts faithfully in the church in light of that identity as a body with different parts, with different functions. And then last week we saw how it involves us living or loving one another genuinely in the church. And we saw the seven exhortations that Mike taught through last week that unpack what that genuine love for one another looks like. This week then we're going to see, you can see this on your handout here, that it also involves us overcoming evil with good in our relationships with one another. It involves overcoming evil with good in our relationships um, with others. So far, in these last couple of sections, Paul's been primarily focusing on how we should think about and relate to one another inside the church. But, but this section here, the verses that we're looking at this morning, seem to broaden that focus beyond our relationships with one another in the church. And so unfortunately, it's, it's not impossible for the kinds of mistreatment that we're going to see in this passage to happen within the church, but the primary focus here seems to be on our relationships with people outside of the church. And so this section, it's, it's a lot like the verses we looked at last week where there's a bunch of short, punchy exhortations that feel somewhat random. They bounce around from one topic to another and from one focus to another. But, but I think there is kind of a common thread throughout these verses. And, and I think the key is in the very last verse in this section, verse 21, where he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I think that verse is intended to be a summary statement for this section here. And so verse 14 starts with talking about how to respond when we're persecuted. Persecution is evil. Then the word evil is explicitly used in verse 17 where we're told not to repay anyone evil for evil. And then in verse 19, 
we're told to never avenge ourselves. And, and the reason we would want to avenge ourselves is because someone has done something evil to us. So, so all throughout this section, we see situations where we're faced with evil. And the question is, how are we going to respond to being treated in an evil way? What we're going to see all through this section is that what God calls us to do and how he calls us to respond is to not be overcome by the evil that is done to us, to not let the evil we experience master us so that we give into it ourselves, but to overcome evil with good. So that's, that's the answer we're going to see this week to what it looks like for us as a church to present ourselves as a singular corporate sacrifice to the Lord. It, it involves overcoming evil with good in our relationships with others. And so we're going to see six different examples of overcoming evil with good in verses 14 through 20. Six different ways that we can be in danger of being overcome by evil in our relationships with others. And six different ways that we can overcome evil with good. And in four of these, the evil is coming from the outside. And that's the thing that we primarily think about when we think about this. The other two, though, initially, they don't feel like they fit. But what we're going to see is that in these other two, the evil that we need to overcome is actually inside of us. And what we'll see is that overcoming the evil inside of us has everything to do with overcoming the evil that comes at us from the outside. So let's look first at verse 14 here. And, and you'll see first, you can see this on your handout, we overcome persecution by responding with blessing. Overcome persecution by responding with blessing. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So in, on initial reading, we might be tempted to think that we can't really relate to this or that this doesn't really apply to us because we don't really face persecution for the most part. Um, and in one sense, that's true. Like, there are definitely times in history and places in the world now where believers have faced and are facing persecution in a way and at a level that, that we aren't experiencing. But the reality is that Jesus taught us to always be ready for persecution. He talked about it more than one place, but listen to John 15, um, 18 through 21. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So just because we're maybe not facing full-blown persecution now doesn't mean that we won't at some point, potentially. Jesus teaches to expect that we will. But even more than that, I think we can relate to and apply this verse because if this is how we're supposed to respond to those who persecute us, like who, who mistreat us in the worst possible way, how much more should this be our response to those who mistreat us in lesser ways? So maybe we don't face the most extreme forms of persecution, at least for now, but there are many ways that we experience hostile words and hostile actions in a lesser sense that still fall under this category. And so, um, so I think this does apply to us and we can learn from this. So if the evil here, though, is persecution, what does it look like for us to be overcome by evil? Um, on initial reading, I think it can almost sound like that's the evil to be overcome by, but I, I don't think that can be the case. It can't mean that bearing the brunt of persecution is being overcome by evil because otherwise every time someone suffers persecution, they're being overcome by evil and, and being persecuted is ultimately out of our control. We can't do anything to stop that. So what is the danger here that we must avoid? I think the key is in how Paul says we're supposed to respond to persecution. He says that we're to bless and not curse. So to curse someone means to call on God to bring disaster or spiritual ruin on them. It's, it's to call on God to judge them, pour out his wrath on them. And Paul is saying that we cannot let persecution drive us to curse our persecutors. Like that's what being overcome by evil is here. It's allowing the mistreatment of your persecutor to stir up in you the same kind of anger and hatred toward your persecutor that they have toward you to the point that you want to see the same thing or worse done to them that they're doing to you. And so I'll, I'll admit at one level, that sounds right. Like that sounds fair. That sounds just. 
they mistreated me. I didn't deserve it. They should pay. Like, they should suffer at least as much as they've made me suffer. And, and so we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a couple verses and deal with that more fully. But for now, Paul says that that cannot be how we respond to persecution. We do not curse our persecutors. Instead, we're to overcome this evil of persecution by blessing our persecutors. And Paul didn't come up with this on his own. Um, Paul's just echoing Jesus' words here. Like, this is what Jesus taught should characterize his followers. Luke, 20, or Luke 6, 27 and 28, for example, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And not only did Jesus teach us to do this, but he modeled it for us. Luke 23, 34, like as Jesus was being crucified, and, and can you think of a more extreme form of persecution than that? Like, did he curse his persecutors? No, he blessed them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like, he called on God to have mercy on them and to forgive them. Like, like that should blow our minds like that goes completely against our natural impulse and goes completely against what we've been taught by the world. And it definitely goes against what anyone would expect someone to actually do in that situation. And the reality is, apart from God renewing our thinking and transforming our actions, like we've been talking about so far in Romans 12, like it's impossible. We, there's no way that we can respond this way. But in light of Romans 1 to 11, as those who have experienced the mercy of God, he's transformed us into people who can respond this way. So, so what does this actually look like? Both blessing and cursing here are, are related to our speech or, and, and to our words. So some of the other verses we'll get to in a minute focus more on our actions, but the focus here is specifically on our words. Like blessing means speaking well of someone. It means speaking well of them. So, so our words to the person and our words about the person should be good and should have their good in mind. And like, that's hard. That's really hard. When someone is mistreating you, the last thing you want to do is to say anything good about that person. Um, we think we're doing good in that situation if we can just keep from saying anything bad about them. Um, but this goes even farther. It's not just keeping your mouth shut. It's actually speaking good things about the person, speaking words that will do them good. And God doesn't want us to just speak good words through clenched teeth, you know, and, and a heart that's burning with rage toward the person either. Like our good words should be an overflow of a heart that genuinely desires their good. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you heard it, it was said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we don't respond to persecution like this in order to become sons of our father. We, we respond to persecution like this because we are sons of our father. His character has become our character. The mercy that God lavishes on sinners, the mercy that God lavished on us overflows from our hearts toward others, even toward those who persecute us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so our words to the person and our words about the person then are good and are for their good. And the ultimate expression of this is praying good for them, praying that God would bestow his favor on them, ultimately praying that he would forgive them and save them just like Jesus did. So, so we're not overcome by the evil of persecution we overcome evil by blessing those who persecute us. Second, um, you see this on your handout next, we overcome self-centeredness by empathizing with and joining in the emotions of others. Look at verse 15 here. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And so this is the first of the two verses that don't sound like they fit. Um, where, where the evil in the last verse was clear and easy to see, it's not immediately obvious here. And so to see it, we have to ask why Paul would need to tell us to do this. Like, why does he need to tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? And I think the reason is because it's not natural for us to do either of those things. Like, the default position of our hearts is to not rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. 
Why not? Um, because the default position of our hearts is to be self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed. Like our tendency is to isolate ourselves and protect ourselves from the emotions of others. Like we put a lot of stock in our emotions, our own emotions. We're easily frustrated when others don't rejoice with us or weep with us. But often when others are rejoicing, we can't fully rejoice with them because we're kind of jealous that whatever good they're celebrating happened to them instead of to us. And when others are weeping, we can't really relate to what they're going through. And, and sometimes, honestly, we question whether they should really be weeping in the first place. Like if, if we're honest, a lot of the times when we do rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep, it's because what they're rejoicing about is something we would already be rejoicing about or what they're weeping about is something we would already be weeping over. And so I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I think, I think we need to see how ugly and evil self-centeredness can be and how prone our hearts are to it. Like if we're overcome by the evil of self-centeredness, we'll live isolated lives, not really knowing each other, not feeling what each other feels, and, and even looking down on what others feel. So how do we overcome this evil, the evil of self-centeredness? How do we overcome that with good? Paul tells us it's by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, by, by empathizing, by joining in with the emotions of others. And all, this flows from, from what we saw a couple weeks ago about thinking rightly about our identity as a body. You just look back at verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul talks about this as well in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So because in Christ we're now united together as one body in the church, we should be characterized by rejoicing with one another and weeping with one another. We, we should know each other so well and be so invested in each other's well-being that when one part of the body rejoices, we all join in wholeheartedly into their joy. It's not just a show. It, it's genuine rejoicing with them. And when one part of the body weeps, we all feel the pain so deeply with them that we literally weep with them. So, so how do we grow in this? Um, for one thing, let me just say first, like I'm thankful for how much of this is already happening. I know we as elders, when we look around the room, uh, there, there have been many opportunities, even recently, to rejoice with one another and weep with one another. And we're thankful for just how, how well you all do that and, and rejoice in how the Lord is doing that in this church. But I know I personally, I, I have some room for growth in this area. So here's, here's a few practical things that have come to my mind as I've been thinking through this verse um, this week. So the main one for me is just like, I really need to know others better. I can't rejoice with somebody or weep with them if I don't know whether they're weeping or rejoicing. So like, I need to be a better friend. I need to spend more time with people. I need to ask more questions. I need to listen better. I, I just, I need to be a better friend to people. Um, another way that I can grow in this is to be slower to judge someone else's emotions and quicker to empathize and join in with their emotions. Like, it's so easy when you see someone rejoicing or weeping to think, like, why are they rejoicing about that or weeping about that? When my first response shouldn't be to judge or correct their emotions, but just to join in with what they're feeling and empathize with them. Like, to sit with them in their joy or in their sadness and listen to what they're feeling and why. Like maybe there's a time at some point to have conversations about a different response to certain things, but, but that initial emotional moment isn't going to be the most helpful time to do that. And, and once they know that I'm genuinely feeling with them, they'll probably be a lot more likely to talk through those kinds of things if that does need to happen. Um, another one that I thought of is, is like, I, just, I need to grow in being willing to show my emotions too. I don't know who else in this room might need to hear that, but, but a lot of my rejoicing and weeping is held back by my self-centeredness in this way. Like I'm too self-conscious about showing my emotions and it keeps me from either rejoicing well or weeping well with someone that I should or from rejoicing or weeping in a way that others can join with me. 
And so oh, there's, there's more. We could, we could keep going with this. But, but that's the second way that we overcome evil with good. We overcome self-centeredness. We overcome the evil of self-centeredness by empathizing with and joining in with the emotions of others. Third, and, and this is closely related, uh, we overcome pride by not thinking we're better than others or smarter than others. See that in verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So there's three parts to this verse, kind of three little short sentences, but I think they all go together to make one point here. The, the phrase live in harmony there is literally think the same thing. Um, it ties back to the renewal of our minds in 12.2 and not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but think with sober judgment in 12.3. And so and that word think then, it's used two other times in verse 16 as well. They're both kind of hidden in the English, but it's there in the phrase do not be haughty, which means don't think high or arrogant thoughts. And it's there in the word wise, which is based on the same root of thinking. So, so this whole verse is about how we're supposed to think and not think. And what this is saying, though, is not that we're all supposed to think the same as one another. It's not saying that we all have to think exactly the same way or that we all have to think exactly the same thing about every issue. That's, that's why the translation of living in harmony is helpful there. Harmony in music is when different musical notes are played together and they sound good. Like, they complement each other. There's no harmony if all the notes are the same. And there's no harmony if one instrument or one note dominates the others or clashes with the others. Harmony happens when the instruments and the notes are different, but they intentionally work together and balance with each other in a way that creates something more beautiful than if any of them were alone. Like, that's how we're to live in the church. So the word, the word with there um, could also be toward, which works better if we're thinking about thinking the same thing. We, we think the same thing toward one another. That's what we're supposed to do. It means we're supposed to have the same mindset or the same attitude toward everyone. It means we don't think better about some people and look down on others based on anything about them. We're not blind to the differences. Again, this ties back to the picture of the, the, body, the different body parts that make up the one body. Like, we're all different. That, that's part of who we are. We need to see each other for who we are. But we have the same attitude toward each other regardless of who we are. So, so how do we do this? That, that's what the other two sentences in verse 16 unpack. Um, and so that's why these all go together. Is that first part about thinking the same thing toward one another. Here's what we're supposed to think toward one another. First... It says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Basically, that means don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think you're better than everyone else. Instead, we're told to associate with the lowly. So lowly there could refer to lowly people, meaning like lower status, with the poor, the needy, outcasts. Or it could refer to lowly tasks. Um, and both of these would make sense. Again, think of Jesus teaching an example. Like who is Jesus known for associating with? The social outcast, right? Like he was known for associating with uneducated, common fishermen, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with sinners, with children. Like the Pharisees seemed to always be shocked and offended by who Jesus associated himself with. Like that, that's who Jesus was known for associating himself with. And then think about the time when the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest. Like what did Jesus say to them? He said, that's the way the world thinks, but not so with you. He said that the greatest should become like the youngest and the leader is the one who serves. He said that he himself was among them as one who serves. And, and he showed that to them the night that he would ultimately be betrayed, be betrayed and arrested. Like John 13, starting verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the point here is that as followers of Jesus, 
who no person and no task was below. No person and no task should be below us. Paul also says then to never be wise in your own sight, which means don't think you're smarter than everyone else. So don't think you're better than anyone else. Don't think you're smarter than anyone else. Like, oh, do you see how pride is at the root of everything? Like, not just in this verse, but in all these verses so far. Like, pride is what causes someone to persecute someone else. Pride is what causes us to curse those who persecute us. Pride is what causes us to be so self-centered that we can't rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. Pride is what causes us to not think the same toward one another or think we're better than other people or that certain tasks are below us. Pride is what causes us to think that we're smarter than other people, that we, that we see things that no one else does, that we're, that we're right and everyone else is, who sees things differently than us or disagrees with us is wrong, that our opinions and preferences are better and matter more than anyone else's. Like, oh, we, we need to see how evil pride is I'm more and more convinced, that, and I've, this is something I've learned myself the hard way, that, that the word pride minimizes the, the sin too much in our minds. Like, it's too easy to say that I struggle with pride like it's common and no big deal. But what's helped me to, to see this sin um, as more evil and more wicked as it actually is, is to, to start calling it something different, to start calling it what it, what it is. It's, it's self-worship. It's self-love. Like, that's what's really going on. And it starts to open my eyes a lot to the evil of pride when I put it in those terms. It doesn't sound so innocent when I say, I struggle with worshiping myself. Um, I struggle with, I, I just love me, you know? Like, that doesn't sound nearly as innocent as, as I struggle with pride. Like, we have to see how ugly and evil pride is and fight to put it to death. And Paul says that we do that. We overcome the evil of pride by the good of reminding ourselves that we're not better than anyone else or smarter than anyone else. Fourth, we overcome mistreatment by intentionally doing what's honorable in return. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. So after dealing with self-centeredness and pride that, that in us, that in our hearts, that cause us to respond to mistreatment wrongly, Paul, Paul turns his attention back now to how we're to respond when we're mistreated. So he doesn't say much here about what's being done to us. He just assumes that some sort of evil has been done to us. And, and the focus, again, is in our response. And so the wrong response would be to repay evil for evil. And again, that's the temptation. That's our natural inclination. When somebody does something evil to us and mistreats us somehow, our, our reflex reaction is to pay them back, to, to do to them what they did to us, to hurt them how they hurt us. But that's not how we should respond as Christians. In light of God's mercy toward us, like our, our response should be different. Paul says that instead of giving into that reflex action of repaying evil for evil, we should give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so honorable here. It means to do what's excellent. It means, means what's pleasing, what's admirable, what's commendable. And so in response to evil, we don't try to pay back those who mistreat us. We respond by doing what's commendable in the sight of all. And we know this, like when somebody responds to mistreatment with good, nearly everyone recognizes the beauty in those actions. Like it's admirable and commendable in the sight of everyone. The reality is, like, that's not a uniquely Christian thing to do. Like, most people teach their kids to be the bigger person, to not respond to an insult with an insult, to respond in an honorable way when they're mistreated. And so if this is something that everybody is wired to see the good in, how much more should we as followers of Jesus be characterized by this? So to do this requires thought, though. That, that's the point. Like, where responding to evil with evil is a reflex reaction, it, it, it just comes out of us when that happens. Responding with good takes forethought, takes planning ahead, takes being prepared for those moments, knowing that they're going to come and being ready to do what's honorable in response when they do. So we have, to, we have to retrain our reflexes so that instead of them firing off an evil response to evil, they begin to be prepared to respond with what's good and admirable and honorable. 
So, so give some thought to that. Like, think of a situation where someone mistreated you recently. Maybe it's still even an ongoing situation now. Um, maybe it's a situation, though, where you let the reflexes kick in too quickly and you need to be prepared differently next time and, and begin retraining your reflexes before something like that happens again. What, what's an intentional, thoughtful way that you could do something honorable in that situation regardless of being, what's being done to you? Think about it. Think about it. Think about ways that you could be prepared for that. Be ready for those moments. And, and just think about how differently we could respond if we had a pre-planned menu of honorable responses for the times when we're mistreated and had, had our reflexes trained to jump to those things instead of to jump to repaying evil with evil. That's, that's the fourth thing here. We overcome evil with good by intentionally giving thought and planning to do what's honorable in return. Fifth, then, we overcome conflict by doing all we can to live peaceably with others. We overcome conflict by doing all we can to live peaceably with others. Verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So notice here that Paul starts off this verse with a couple of conditions. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So so to a certain extent here, he's acknowledging that conflict in this world is inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's not always going to be possible to live peaceably with everyone because it doesn't always depend on us. But that shouldn't cause us to say, well, just never be able to be at peace with everyone. Oh, well. Like, that's not the way we respond. Our desire should be to be at peace with everyone. That's what all means there. It's everyone. Um, We should be willing to do everything we can for that to be the case. That's the point. So that means a couple of things here. Uh, One, it means that there's no excuse for us needlessly stirring up conflict. Um, And I I don't want to needlessly stir up conflict about needlessly stirring up conflict, so I'm not going to say a whole lot here, but I think this is something we need to be really, really cautious about. Like, yes, the gospel is offensive. Following Jesus means that our lives and our priorities and our values are going to clash with the world around us. And so that's why conflict is going to be unavoidable at some level for us. But we need to be really careful that it's the gospel that's causing the conflict and not us. Like one way that we can overcome conflict is by not causing it in the first place. Second, though, like we should be quick to make peace whenever it's possible. And we should work really hard to be reconciled whenever it's possible. And oh, like we could do a whole sermon series on this, um, but let me just mention a couple of good resources that are super, super helpful when it comes to resolving conflicts. Like first, um, there's a little book called Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy, uh, S-A-N-D-E is how his last name is spelled. Just over 100 pages. You could probably read it in an afternoon if you wanted to, if you had, had a, a situation going on and you're like, I need help. Like you could sit down and read it in an afternoon. And man, it is, it is super practical, super helpful um, there's even a chapter, I was flipping back through it this week, as came to mind as I was thinking about this, there's a chapter in there called Overcome Evil with Good, Pressing on with Deliberate Love, which is based mostly on our passage this morning. So um, great little book. If you don't have a copy of that on your bookshelf, like you should pick it up, read through it, keep it handy to pull out and review that regularly. Um, second though, um, and this is a little bit shorter and a little bit easier, uh, there's an article from Tim Challies called The Beginner's Guide to Conflict Resolution. We used to include this um, as an appendix in our membership class material. And so if you have one of the spiral bound membership class books, if you went through the membership class and got one of those, you might actually have it on your shelf already. So you might check in there and see if you have it. If not, Google it, print it out or save it somewhere. Um, I looked it up again yesterday. You can still find it really easily. Um, What's super helpful about Tim's article is that he differentiates between different types of conflict. So I'm pretty sure he draws from some other authors for these. But he categorizes conflict into conflicts of differentness, conflicts of righteousness, and conflicts of sinfulness. And then each of those different categories have different steps toward making peace. And so conflicts of differentness would be situations that we just have a different opinion or preference than somebody. And a lot of times in those situations, how we live at peace with each other is just to learn how to be okay with those differences. Neither one of us is right or wrong. 
Both are fine, valid opinions or preferences, and we need to learn how to just be able to talk about those things peacefully, listen to each other, learn from each other, and be okay if we still have different opinions and preferences at the end of the day. Like, that's part of being in a body full of different parts. It's part of the beauty of what God is doing in the church. So that, that's one category. The second category would be conflicts of righteousness. That's the next step beyond that last category. So still somewhat in the realm of opinion, but in this case, we have scriptural reasons for holding to the opinion or the preferences that we have. And so these would fall more in the category of maybe what we call a conviction. And so we're going to get more into this soon in Romans, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here yet. But, but living at peace in this category is surprisingly similar to the last one. It's more about our own heart than it is about the other person's. It's about learning to listen and respect their position. Like we can have humble, loving, respectful discussion about our convictions. And for the most part, we shouldn't let those things divide us. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we get a little bit further into Romans. Third category then is conflicts of sinfulness. And these are the situations where someone has actually sinned against someone else or in, in this case, sinned against us. So even in, even in this case, depending on the sin, there are times where one option is just to overlook the offense and choose to live at peace with that person. Just forgive them and let it go and move on. But when that's not possible for whatever reason, and there are things in this category where that's not possible, like whatever the type of sin it is or just whatever is going on in your own heart that you just can't overlook that, like there are biblical steps then to follow to pursue reconciliation. Matthew 18 um, it would be the classic passage on that. Um, and there's good resources that can help walk you through those kinds of situations. But in those situations, as hard as it is, we don't just let those situations fester. We, we do whatever it takes to reconcile so that we can live at peace. And there may come a point where you've done everything that you can do. That's the point of this verse. You've, there may come a point where you've done everything you can do. And at least for now, it's not possible. You're not able to get to a point where you, there's peace in that situation. But even then, like our heart posture should be always looking for, is that door going to open back up again and be ready to step in there and be ready to make peace if God were to open that back up and allow for that to happen again? Like Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Like just think of the lengths that God went to make peace with us. Our conflict with him was our fault. <laughs> but he gave his only son to die in our place and to take the wrath that we deserve so that we could have peace with him. He went to the most extreme lengths and paid the most extreme cost to make peace with us. It's, it's Romans 5.1. We read this several months ago now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like through Jesus, we've been declared righteous by faith. And now we have peace with God. So as those who've been recipients of that kind of peacemaking, we're transformed into peacemakers. This is another way that we take on the character of our Father. And so now we overcome conflict by doing all we can to live peaceably with others. Finally here, uh, verses 19 and 20, we overcome hostility by extending kindness to those who are against us. Trusting the Lord will ultimately make things right. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, verse 19, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So again, the, the temptation when evil has been done to us is to avenge ourselves. We, and in this case, like thinking about it this way, we're, we're able to convince ourselves that, that we're executing justice in response to injustice. Like they deserve this for what they did to me. But Paul's saying that's not how we should respond. Yes, what was done to us was wrong. It was evil. But we cannot be overcome by evil and respond by avenging ourselves. Instead, Paul says that we're to leave it up to the wrath of God. We're to, we're to leave room for the wrath of God. Like everything in us wants to avenge ourselves, but we have to recognize that that's not our place and that's not our job. Instead, there's two things in verse 19 for us to remember. One, we remember God's ultimate future judgment. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 35 there. He says, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so like that ought to be both terrifying and really freeing to us. 
like it's terrifying because of what God's vengeance and God repaying means. Like ultimately what's in view here is God's ultimate future judgment. It means the wrath of God poured out for all eternity on those who don't repent. And as much as we want to see the wrongs done to us made right, like it ought to be sobering to us to think about what evil deserves and the judgment that will ultimately come on our enemies if they don't repent. At the same time, though, it's, it's, it's sobering, it's terrifying, but it's also incredibly freeing as well because we, we can trust the fate of our enemies into the hands of God, knowing that he will ultimately do what's right and he will ultimately make things right. We can't carry out that kind of justice that evil ultimately deserves, but God can and God will. And so remember God's future judgment. That's the first thing that helps us. Number two, though, is remember who you are. Like, I love this. Like, what's the first word there in verse 19? I don't think this is an accident. Paul's reminding them who they are. They're beloved. That's who you are. Like, Christian, God loves you. Like, think about what that means. Like, first, it means he sees you. He knows what you're going through. Like, he knows what you're suffering. He knows the evil that has been done to you, and he will take care of you, and he will make it right. Like, imagine you're a kid being bullied and your, your dad walks into the room. Like, how do you feel in that moment? Like, you know your dad loves you. You know he sees what's going on. You know he's bigger and stronger than that bully. And so you're, you're safe now. Like, he's going to take care of everything. It's going to be okay. And so don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that he's going to keep you from ever being mistreated in this life. Like your suffering might last to the, to the end of your life. It might last the rest of your life, but it won't last forever. And in the end, God is gonna make it right. Not just okay, he's gonna make it perfect because he loves you. And so the other thing that it means that God loves you, though, is that you are one who has experienced the undeserved love of God. Like you were God's enemy. You deserved God's wrath, not his love but he had mercy on you. He made peace with you through the death of Jesus. And now you've been adopted as his child and you are the recipient of his undeserved love. And so both of those things, God's ultimate future judgment and his love for us ought to change everything about how we respond to our enemies. Like instead of avenging ourselves, we rest in God's love for us that we didn't deserve. We trust that he'll ultimately make things right and we extend love and kindness to our enemies. Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 there in verse 20. Like, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Like, that's how free we are to love our enemies. And providing for their basic needs, like, we're, we're treating them as human. And even more than that, we're treating them as family. And there, there's something about, like, that simple expression of love there that just makes your jaw drop. I mean, it, it'd be one thing if your enemy was in mortal danger and you had the means of rescuing them. Like, do they deserve that? No. But most people would probably at least say that they would step in and save the life of an enemy if they had the opportunity. But, but something so small as giving them lunch when they're hungry or giving them a drink when they're thirsty is just shocking. Like, not only do they not deserve that, they'd be fine without it, and no one would expect you to do that for them. Like, that kind of love is, is just shocking. But that's the kind of good that overcomes evil. So what about the part there about heaping burning coals on their head? Like, what about that whole thing? Like, it's, it's tricky. Um, some people will say that it basically means that if you show that kind of kindness to your enemy, you're pouring shame on them for the way they treated you. And they're going to be ashamed because they treated you that way. And they'll respond by, by repenting. And, uh, and, and that's possible. Um, we should definitely desire for that to happen. But at the same time, we, we know that there's no guarantee that doing these kinds of things to them will have that effect. And, and the reality is nowhere else in Scripture is that what burning coals means. Like burning coals is Sodom and Gomorrah language. Like, it's, it's wrath of God language. Like, that's what's being talked about here. And so we got to be careful with this. Like, this does not mean that we extend kindness to our enemies as an underhanded way of getting back at them. Like, the whole point is not that we don't avenge ourselves. We leave it to the wrath of God, and, and, and then we, like, give them food or water going, ha-ha, like, that'll teach you. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. But what we are supposed to see 
is that even in these acts of kindness, if they don't lead to the repentance of our enemies, God's going to use that. That's going to be part of what God looks at and what God takes into account when he's making things right in the end. Like their guilt will be increased because of the undeserved kindnesses that we extend to them. Which again, it frees us up even more to overcome evil by extending kindness to our enemies because we trust that in the end, God really will do what's right and he really will make things right in the end, taking everything into account. And so, so that's what it looks like in these verses for us as a church to present ourselves as a singular corporate sacrifice to the Lord. Like we've, there's a lot, we've covered a lot of stuff here, but putting all that together, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to present ourselves as a singular corporate sacrifice to the Lord. It looks like first overcoming the self-centeredness and pride in our own hearts so that we don't think we're better or smarter than others and so that we can genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then our hearts will be in the right place where we're able to overcome evil with good in our relationships with others by responding to mistreatment with good words, intentional, honorable actions, doing all we can to live at peace with everyone, and extending kindness to those who are against us because we know ultimately that God will do what's right and make things right. That's the, that's the part of our reasonable response to everything that we've seen in Romans 1 to 11 um, that, that we're supposed to see in these verses here. That as those who've been justified by God through faith, adopted as children of God, who have died to sin, been set free from sin, and are now alive to God in Christ, that new life, that new identity should just naturally overflow into these kinds of thinking and these kinds of action. Because what we do flows out of who we are. And so because of who we are, these things should characterize us. And so I know we flew through these verses, but there's a reason that these verses are so short and punchy. Like there's a reason that there's not necessarily a whole lot of deep logic and flow and, and, and a, and a con- contained argument here. It's because this isn't intended to be a checklist of do's and don'ts or a manual of how to do these things. It, it, these verses that we just looked at, they're intended to be a mirror that, that we look into and see if we recognize the reflection. Like these exhortations aren't about becoming something we're not. They're about living like who we are. Like these are the natural overflows of being transformed by the grace of God, being overwhelmed by the mercy of God. And so if we've truly been transformed by the gospel that Paul laid out in Romans 1 to 11, if we are truly in awe of the mercy of God toward us in the gospel, these things will characterize us more and more and more. And if we look into this mirror and we don't recognize ourselves, the response isn't to say, man, I I need to try harder to do those things. Like you you can try that and you might be able to do them for a little while, but it's not going to last. The way to grow in being characterized by these things is to go back to Romans 1 to 11 and to meditate on those truths, to marvel at the love of God for you, to be astonished by the grace and mercy of God towards you. And that love will begin to characterize you and how you relate to others in the church. And that mercy will begin to characterize you and how you respond to those who mistreat you so that you're not overcome by evil, but you can overcome evil with good.